Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls, Dolls and Doom. Doom. Okay, so Paula, kind of, I kind of have a personal question for you. Okay, hit me. Have you ever been involved in a love triangle? I don't think so. Okay. I didn't think you had. No. I'm not a hot commodity. <laughs> well, no, that's not why I thought that. You're kind of, you're just a sweet girl, so. Eh. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. Today's story revolves around a love triangle gone very, very bad. So while he was an undergraduate at the University of California from 1978 to 1982, a man named John Rutten, who was a mechanical engineering major from San Diego, was your typical college student. And one of the things that he was really interested in, like a lot of college guys are, was women. And one of the women he would occasionally see was a woman named Stephanie Lazarus, who was a fellow Dykstra Hall resident and a political science major. Now, rumor had it that Stephanie was a lot more invested in this relationship than John was. And that's a story, unfortunately, we hear quite often, right? Oh, yes. I've been there (laughs) many times. Me too. You know who you are. Yeah, right. (laughs) Sir. Uh, (laughs) Well, Stephanie really liked this guy. And she was known to do, like, cute things like steal John's clothes when he showered. Oh, yeah. Been there too. (laughs) Yeah. Gotta have that shirt to cuddle with. That's right. She would even take photographs of him, like, while he slept. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of uh, interesting. I don't think I've ever done that. But, you know, these are things that you might do if you really liked someone. But John, he never really considered this relationship as anything more than just, like, fooling around. Okay. He kind of described it as a friends with benefits type situation. And he would later say that they had sex maybe 20 or 30 times over the course of about three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he said it wasn't like really serious. Right. And during this three years, John accepted a job with a hard drive manufacturer named Micropolis. So after graduating, John met another woman named Sherry Rasmussen. And she was a graduate from Loma Linda University, and she was on a fast career track in critical care nursing. She'd actually entered college at 16, and by her late 20s was the director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. And she was giving presentations and teaching classes for fellow nurses there. Wow, good for her. Yeah. That sounds really impressive. Yeah. I love a strong woman. Me too. That's awesome. Yep. Even though John was never into... Stephanie like really and even after he'd met Sherry who he did really like and he did start dating seriously Stephanie was still head over heels for John and she even threw him a surprise birthday party on his 25th birthday I know (laughs) and she was completely unaware that he'd been dating other women or that he'd even met or developed a serious relationship with Sherry. Oh, uh, so yeah, that sucks. Yeah, so he's keeping it from her. So Right, if you're going to see other people, tell the person you're dating. That was always my biggest rule when I was dating. I was always completely honest. If I didn't like you like that, I was going to let you know. Right. If I wanted to see other people, I would let you know. I If I didn't like you anymore, I never ghosted anybody. I just said, I'm sorry, this isn't work. I hate that. 
like not being honest with people. Right. And I've been in the girl's shoes where Mm -hmm. I've told the guy, look, I know you're probably not serious, but let's just be honest. If you're seeing other people, let me know so I can do the same thing. Don't string me along. Right. And these guys still did it. So Mm -hmm. I know how she feels. Uh, Yeah. So do I. That sucks. Well, when she did finally learn that he was seriously involved with another woman, Stephanie was obviously heartbroken. She even wrote a letter to John's mother saying, quote, I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision, end quote. In her own journal, she wrote, I really don't feel like working. I just found out that John is getting married. So after she found out that he was engaged in an effort to, I guess, win John back, Stephanie went to John's condo. And what do you think John did? Kicked her out or called security? (laughs) Oh, we wish, we wish. No, he had sex with her. What? Well, you know, to give her closure. No, that's not closure. That's leading her on and cheating on your fiancé. Right. He's a sweet guy, obviously. So this wasn't the only time John would allow Stephanie to come around during his engagement to Sherry. One time, Stephanie brought her skis to the apartment where John and Sherry lived, and she asked John to wax them for her. And Sherry obviously didn't like this at all, and she asked John to please cut off all ties with Stephanie and to no longer allow her in their home. But John would not do this. And Sherry noticed that when Stephanie did come over, she was always dressed, like, really flatteringly. Mm -hmm. She would wear, like, tight workout clothes and always looked really cute. Yeah, check me out clothes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yup. Well, obviously, Sherry found this strange, and one day after Stephanie had left the apartment, Sherry outright asked John if his relationship with Stephanie was truly over, and John convinced her that the two were just friends. So Sherry was obviously unnerved by these visits, and she pleaded with John to tell Stephanie to stop coming by, but John only said there was nothing to their relationship and that she should just ignore Stephanie. And according to Sherry's father, Nels, Stephanie would later visit Sherry at her office to tell her that things were not over between her and John. And she told Sherry, if I can't have John, no one else will. Sherry also told her father that she felt that Stephanie was stalking her on the street. Now, eventually, John and Sherry did get married in November of 1985. So on the morning of February 24th, 1986, John left the condo he shared with his now wife, Sherry, to go to work. And Sherry was actually scheduled to give one of those motivational training speeches at work that day. But she really didn't like doing this. She didn't feel like it was a very effective way of training. She didn't enjoy doing them. So to avoid it, she told John that she might just call in sick that day. And she was going to use a back injury that she'd gotten like the day before while she was just doing aerobics. She was going to use that as an excuse to not go to work. So at 9.45 that morning, John and Sherry's neighbor noticed that John and Sherry's garage door was open, but there was no car visible. And about 15 minutes later, John made the first of several unanswered phone calls home. And Sherry's sister also called without getting any answer. At noon, two men who one of the neighbors believed were gardeners in the area gave the neighbor a purse that they had found while they were out and this purse would later be discovered to be Sherry's. 
A maid cleaning a nearby unit said that she heard something that sounded like two people fighting and then something falling at around 12.30 p.m. So when John returned home that night, he found his garage door open and broken glass on the driveway. In addition, he discovered that the BMW he had bought for Sherry as an engagement gift was missing. Now, because of Sherry's morning plans to call out of work, he found it pretty strange that she would have later gone out without letting him know. And the house's answering machine had not been activated. And this was back when you had to, like, turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> it was an actual machine for all these youngins out there. And, you know, that was very unusual because whenever they left the house, they would always activate the answering machine. When he went inside, John found Sherry dead on the living room floor. She had been shot three times. Oh, jeez. I know. There were signs of a struggle, such as a porcelain vase that had been broken over Sherry's head, it appeared, a bloody handprint next to the burglar's alarm panic button, and a toppled credenza. And it appeared that someone at least attempted to bind Sherry at some point. She had defensive wounds and a bruise on her face that appeared to have been inflicted by the muzzle of a gun. And the gun had been fired through a quilted blanket, apparently to try to muffle the sound. Right. Now, the investigating criminalist also observed a bite mark on Sherry's arm, and he took a swab from it. So the LAPD detectives investigating the case quickly concluded that Sherry had been surprised and killed by a burglar. Sherry's attire, which was a bathrobe, a nightgown, and some underwear, suggested that she was not expecting visitors. And although a maid in a neighboring unit reported hearing screaming and fighting earlier in the day, she didn't recall hearing gunshots. She thought the whole event had just been a domestic dispute, and she didn't even bother to call the police. It appeared that the perpetrator had been in the process of taking electronic equipment when Sherry discovered them, and as a result, some jewelry had been left behind, and the vehicle was taken as a getaway car. So it doesn't really sound like a burglary. Well, a burglary that went wrong. Yeah, it got or interrupted. interrupted. Yeah. Uh, the abandoned BMW was found a week later, but it had no new evidence. And the only other thing that appeared to have been taken from the home was the couple's marriage license. That's weird. That's weird, right? Yeah. Lead detective Lyle Mayer did consider other possibilities, but he quickly ruled out the grieving John as a suspect. John quit his job and moved away from L.A. shortly after the murder. And Nels, Sherry's father, and his wife Loretta told Detective Meyer about Stephanie Lazarus' harassment, and he said he would make a note of it. Now, regardless, the police remained focused on the possibility of burglary, especially in light of one reported later in the same area, in which one of the two reported suspects had been carrying a gun, possibly a thirty-eight caliber, just like the one that had fired three bullets into Sherry. Now, Meyer's partner, Steve Hooks, found the bite mark left on Sherry pretty unusual, as bites during struggles are much more commonly inflicted by women. Did you know that? No, but it makes sense. It does. It does make I, sense. I can see that. But I would have never thought about it. Right, me too. Or me neither. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the majority of burglars are men. Did you know that? No, but that also makes sense. It does. However, because men have bitten opponents during fights as well, the burglary theory stood. So time goes by and the suspected burglars remain at large, despite a follow-up newspaper story eight months later 
and a reward offered by the Sherry Rasmussen family. The LAPD, preoccupied with all of the violence resulting from gang wars and the crack epidemic that was plaguing the city at the time, was unable to devote much more attention to the case. Detectives were often pretty unhelpful when the family called, putting them on hold or even hanging up on them. Jeez. A year after the murder, the frustrated family reiterated their offer at a press conference and called for more action. Nels wrote to Daryl Gates, then chief of the LAPD, about the possibility that a woman by the name of Stephanie Lazarus might have been involved. But detectives told him he simply watched too much television. Oh, brother. Now, despite this, Nels continued to publicize the reward and later worked with the short-lived television series called Murder One on a segment inspired by the case. You see, Nels in particular was unconvinced that Sherry, who had been six feet tall and had a large frame and was in good physical shape, had been the victim of a botched burglary. It would have been a struggle for anyone to subdue her in such close quarters, and Myra had told him at one point that the events may have lasted up to an hour and a half, which is a long time for burglars, primarily after items of value in the home. Further, whoever shot his daughter had fired directly into her chest at close range and had taken the trouble to muffle the shot with the quilt, suggesting that the killing was deliberate and not the accidental byproduct of a struggle. Yeah, that makes sense. Detective Meyer eventually retired, and the new detective assigned to the case told Nels that he was unable to follow up on Meyer's notes and did not think that any new leads would emerge. Nels was rebuffed again in 1993 when he offered to pay for DNA testing on the evidence from the murder, now that the technology was finally available. He was told that the police had to have a suspect in order to proceed with testing. Now, Stephanie Lazarus briefly reunited with John Rutten back in 1989. Detective Meyer's notes showed that John Rutten had called him and asked him if he was absolutely sure there was no evidence leaking Stephanie with his late wife's death. They had no evidence, so John and Stephanie got back together. In the late 1990s, after DNA testing had become more prominent, the LAPD formed a new unit that looked through the forensic evidence collected from the department's cold case files to determine whether any had the potential for new leads through DNA testing. And among the evidence seen as likely to do so was that collected from the Sherry Rasmussen residence. However, it wasn't until 2004 that another criminalist named Jennifer Francis was actually able to analyze it as strangely some of the evidence from the Sherry Rasmussen case, including that which might have contained the suspect's DNA, was missing. So when she was finally able to test the evidence that did still remain, Francis did not find any matches in the combined DNA index system database. But she did find that the saliva in it had come from a female, which of course undermined the initial detective's burglary theory. So that bite was done by a female. Now, Jennifer Francis would later say that normally when she was given a sample to test, she would just be given the sample. But in this case, she had been given access to not just the sample, but the entire case file. And this had probably happened in an effort to help her decide which other samples to analyze. 
and upon discovering that the biter, and therefore likely the perpetrator, was female, she reviewed the entire file, and she came across a report of a third-party female who had allegedly harassed the victim at her job and residence before the murder. Finally. <laughs> Takes a woman to <laughs> figure all this out. Seriously. <laughs> We're better researchers. <laughs> That's right. So Francis asked the detective supervising her if this woman had been investigated, to which he responded, Oh, you mean the LAPD detective? He elaborated that the woman, a former girlfriend of the victim's husband, was in fact a current LAPD detective, but that she's not a part of this. He insisted that this case was simply a burglary, as the department had long concluded. No other detective would pursue the case, and the evidence went back into the files. Okay, wait, so was she really a policeman? Yes. A policewoman? While John and Stephanie were still dating, before John ever even met Sherry, Stephanie went to the police academy, and then she got a job as an officer at the LAPD. That's why she was never investigated. Right. It's the very police department that would later investigate Sherry's murder. So remember how I told you that Stephanie dropped her skis off at John and Sherry's condo? Yes. Well, when she picked them up, she waited until John was at work. And then when she came by to get them from Sherry, she was in full uniform and armed. Alone at the house with Sherry carrying a weapon. Right. Just a way to, like, intimidate. Intimidate, exactly. So after Sherry's death, Stephanie was never looked into as a potential suspect. Surprise, surprise. Right. And she continued working with the LAPD. She even went on to start her own private investigation firm, Unique Investigations. And in 1987, she earned medals, including one gold, at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego. In 1993, after stints at the department's drug abuse residence education and internal affairs divisions, she became a detective. Three years later, she married a fellow officer and adopted a daughter with him. She moved back to Simi Valley at work. She became an instructor at the police academy. And John eventually remarried as well. So by 2009, crime in Los Angeles had declined enough from its earlier levels that detectives began looking into cold cases to increase their clearance rates. And one of the files reviewed was the Sherry Rasmussen file. And detectives found it very interesting, enough so to be worth pursuing. Now, because the DNA test pointed to a female suspect, they decided finally that the burglary theory was invalid and that they would have to start from the beginning. Now, detectives looked at the case as murder, and the burglary just appeared to be staged to throw the police off the trail. Many aspects of the crime were improbable for a break-in. Things like, you know, the crime being committed in daylight, Sherry's jewelry box, which would be an inviting target for a burglar, was left in plain view atop her dresser, but yet it had not been touched. The condo was in the middle of a gated complex. It was surrounded by other units from which burglars could have easily been observed. The front door had an alarm, and it had not been forced open. Inside, a key aspect of the crime scene was also inconsistent with the burglary theory. You see, at the top of the stairs was a stack of stereo equipment on top of a VCR. 
And if, as the evidence had suggested, the struggle between Sherry and her attacker had begun upstairs and then continued downstairs, that stack should have been knocked over and knocked downstairs and scattered all over the floor. But it wasn't. It was still neatly stacked right there. It made much more sense to assume that it had been stacked afterwards, when an actual burglar would have fled the scene immediately after the shooting. And the forensics reinforced this theory. On a record player atop the stack was a thumb-shaped blood stain. It had no print, suggesting whoever left it was wearing gloves, but the blood was Sherry's, suggesting that the equipment had been stacked after the struggle and after the shooting. It had been left behind to make the crime look like something other than what it really was. Now, from the four bound volumes of the case file, they developed a list of five female suspects. Detectives were taken back when they learned that one of these suspects, Stephanie Lazarus, was not only a police officer, but had been promoted to a higher level of detective and was working art theft cases as part of the Commercial Crimes Division. As one of the two detectives in the nation's only full-time unit devoted to that specialty, Stephanie had gained some local media attention when she and her partner had recovered a statue stolen from Carthay Circle. And to better understand the field, she told a local newspaper that she'd begun learning to paint. Off the job, Stephanie had been active in the Los Angeles Women Police Officers Association. She'd organized childcare for families of officers. She also made chocolate-covered cherries and homemade soap for her neighbors in Simi Valley for Christmas. Since Stephanie Lazarus was still with the department, these new detectives on the case, Nutal and Barbara, they realized they'd have to proceed carefully. But even with this new information, they ranked Stephanie Lazarus as the least promising of the five suspects. Since they read in the files that she and John had ended any relationship that they'd had over the summer before the murder. Well, Nutal and Barbara's investigations soon eliminated all but one of the other women. The other was a former co-worker of Sherry's who had had some disputes with her, but she was eliminated by a covertly collected DNA sample. With only Stephanie Lazarus left, they kept their investigation a closely guarded secret. And not only did her husband also work in commercial crimes division as a detective, she may have had other friends who could have tipped her off. If she were the killer, she could have improved her defense. And if she were not, they could have unintentionally smeared a fellow officer who had had an unblemished service record over the course of her career with no disciplinary investigations or civilian complaints. So they only referred to her as number five and worked on the case after hours or behind closed doors and developed cover stories to explain why they wanted to look at personnel records for one particular officer from 20 years prior. The detectives began looking into other aspects of Stephanie Lazarus's life during the mid-1980s, and another detective recalled that at the time, most LAPD officers had preferred a 38 as their backup or off-duty carry gun. In fact, they were required to only purchase weapons compatible with the ammunition that had been used in the murder. State and departmental records showed that Stephanie Lazarus had indeed owned a Smith & Wesson 38 at the time, and she did report it stolen to Santa Monica police, but not to her own department's armorer, only 13 days after the murder. Now, since the location where Stephanie had reported it stolen was near a popular pier, they assumed she had thrown the gun into the Pacific Ocean. 
Without the weapon, DNA would be the only definite way to connect the crime to Stephanie Lazarus. So Newtall and Barbara theorized from their own experience about how an LAPD officer would commit a murder. It would be better to do it on a day off, and departmental records showed that Stephanie had indeed been off on the day Sherry was killed. An officer would know better than to use his or her duty gun, since it would have to be disposed of after the crime, and the penalties for losing a duty gun or failing to prevent its theft were pretty severe. Instead, it made sense to use a backup gun, like Stephanie's 38. Lastly, a working patrol officer would know just what to do to make the crime scene look like an interrupted burglary to satisfy an overworked detective. Well, Nels told Detective Nuttall about Stephanie Lazarus' continued contact with his daughter, which had not been in the files despite him mentioning it frequently during his previous interviews. Realizing that Stephanie was now their prime suspect, the detectives informed their superiors and arranged to discreetly collect a voluntarily discarded DNA sample from her, knowing that they could do so without having to get a warrant, which would have let Stephanie Lazarus know she was under investigation. While off-duty running errands, Stephanie discarded a cup from which she had been drinking, and the other police retrieved it. A sample was taken from it, and it matched the DNA from the bite mark on Sherry Rasmussen. Finally. So Rob Bubb, the homicide detective supervisor, began letting his senior officers all the way up to Chief William Bratton know of the case along with senior prosecutors from the L.A. County District Attorney's Office. It was transferred to the Robbery Homicide Division, which handled many of the department's high-profile cases, including the art theft where Stephanie Lazarus herself worked. Her arrest was planned carefully, and on the day of the arrest in June 2009, dozens of officers arose before dawn. After being briefed on a search warrant they were told would be executed outside the city, but with few details beyond that, they went to wait near Stephanie's home and the Metrolink station where Stephanie commuted to the city. A short time later, detectives from the RHD, who'd been selected for their lack of personal collection to Stephanie Lazarus, called her from the lockup at Parker Center, which was the department's headquarters. Bratton had ordered the location to be used since Stephanie would have to surrender her gun in order to enter it, limiting the possibility that she might resist violently when she was arrested or when she realized that she was the prime suspect. The detectives Greg Stearns and Dan Jaramillo told her that they had someone in custody who wanted to talk about an art theft. After Stephanie checked in her gun and she entered the interrogation room, they explained that this was really about some loose ends they were trying to tie up in the Sherry Rasmussen case, since her name had come up in the investigation. They claimed they wanted a private setting because while John was an old boyfriend, Stephanie had long been married to someone else and they didn't want her private life to become the subject of office gossip. Stearns and Jeremilla knew that they would have to tread carefully since Stephanie herself was well aware of police interview techniques and her rights to silence and legal counsel, which she could invoke at any time. So they rambled and I digressed from the subject at times, sometimes discussing unrelated police business, but eventually they would always come back to Sherry. And Stephanie claimed to recall little due to the intervening years, but she gradually revealed more and more knowledge including oblique acknowledgments of her visits to the John Rutten condo and a specific encounter at Sherry's office until she finally accused her colleagues of considering her a suspect. 
The detectives mentioned it was possible that they had DNA evidence from the crime scene and they requested DNA samples from Stephanie Lazarus. But Stephanie declined and therefore left the room. She was then arrested and charged with the murder. Once she'd been arrested, the police officer teams in Simi Valley began searching Stephanie's home and her car. And in her house, they found her journal from the mid-1980s with numerous mentions of her love for John Rutten and her despondence over his engagement to Sherry. She also never mentioned her gun being stolen. Her computer showed that she'd searched the internet for John Rutten's name on several occasions during the late 1990s. As the investigating detectives had been, many LAPD officers were stunned at the idea that Stephanie Lazarus might have murdered someone. Fellow detectives recalled her as vivacious and supportive, although some also recalled that her behavior when angry had led some to call her spazarous behind her back. Lovely. <laughs> so sweet. Yeah. After her arrest, Stephanie Lazarus was allowed to retire early from the LAPD. She was held in the Los Angeles County Jail. A bail hearing was not held for almost six months, and Judge Robert Perry surprised both sides when he set the amount at $10 million in cash, which is well above what the defense had suggested, and more than twice what prosecutors had proposed. The case against Stephanie was very strong, he said, and thus she might well be at risk to flee the country or obtain weapons through her husband. Stephanie's lawyer, Mark Overland, said that the judge did not understand this case and contrasted the high figure with the $1 million set for Robert Blake or Phil Spector when they were charged with murder. Several months later, Stephanie's brother claimed she was not receiving adequate treatment for an unspecified cancer while in custody. The trial began in early 2012 in L.A. County Superior Court. Prosecutors argued Stephanie Lazarus's motive for the murder was jealousy over Sherry Rasmussen's relationship with John Rutten. In his opening argument, prosecutor Shannon Presby summed up the case as, quote, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove to you that defendant Stephanie Lazarus murdered Sherry Rasmussen, end quote. A highlight of the case was John Rutten's testimony. Several times he became very emotional and wept, particularly when recalling his courtship of Sherry Rasmussen. He allowed that having sex with Stephanie while he was engaged to his future wife was a mistake. In cross-examining the police detectives and other technicians who had originally investigated the killing, Overland stressed that the botched burglary theory and pointed to evidence such as the similar burglary that happened shortly thereafter that he claimed supported it. He also highlighted evidence that was not analyzed, such as a bloody fingerprint on one of the walls, to suggest that other suspects had not been adequately excluded from consideration. In March, after several days of deliberations, Stephanie Lazarus, who was then 52, was convicted of first-degree murder. Later that month, she was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison, and she is currently serving her sentence at the California Institution for Women. After credit for time served before the trial, she will be eligible for parole in December 2024. Stephanie Lazarus filed a lengthy appeal of her conviction in May 2013, but the appeal was denied. So that's the case. Wow. Pretty scary, huh? Yeah. I actually have heard that before, but the way that you came at it, it was completely new to me. Oh. Because I was thinking in my head, oh, this kind of reminds me of the one, but... That lady's a cop, and that's not what this is. And then you surprised me. Oh, and by the way, she was a cop. <laughs> yes, she was. 
Yeah, it's isn't it crazy though that like and I get it because like if someone if I were in charge of investigating a murder and you were one of the suspects and someone was like, Oh, it was Paulo's, I can see where I'd be like, No, it, you know what I mean? Yeah, like I where know you'd her. be she biased. Yeah. Right, which is why you have to get in a situation like this, LAPD shouldn't have been the ones investigating. Exactly. The fact that it wasn't even in the file. Yeah. It was just some third some unknown third woman. Yeah, pretty pretty crazy. And not even to investigate the thumbprint or the bite mark. Right. I mean, it was completely overlooked. Yeah. Because even one of the records said that they'd broken up the summer before the murder. Well, she was murdered in February. So you're less than a year before they'd broken up. Right. And you've got the father saying, but this happened and this happened and this happened. And you don't even bother to investigate it. Exactly. That's definitely close-minded. So. And then going to her work and threatening her at her job. Right. That's pretty serious. And what's crazy to me is this woman went on to have, like, this unblemished career. It seems like she was a really good cop, a really good investigator. Yeah, and little Sally Homemaker. Yeah, really, really good at her job. Yet she's a murderer. Insane. Yeah. Double life. Moral of the story, stay out of those love triangles. Seriously. (laughs) They're almost (laughs) never worth it. Yeah. If you can tell that the other person just isn't that into you, give up, walk away, find someone who is. Oh, my gosh. If, If I could go back and give myself like one piece of dating advice it would be like hey if they don't like you walk away yeah you're not going to make them like you by please please love me please it doesn't matter how (laughs) many times you show up looking cute it's not going to matter no if they're too dumb to see what they got walk away yeah because you will find somebody who loves you and then you're going to look back like me and be like i wasted oh my god i wasted so much time on somebody who didn't even like deserve me Oh, well. You live, you learn. Yeah, that's true. Well, for my time to kill, I have another TV show review. Ooh, okay. I have two shows, and both of them are on Netflix. Okay. The first one is called Clickbait. Oh, I've heard of this, but I haven't watched it yet. Okay. It is so good. Okay. So, basically, the plot is a family man who's abducted with a sinister online twist. His family is in a race to uncover who is behind it and why. At first, I didn't really uh, really understand what clickbait meant, so mm-hmm. I actually looked it up. And it's anything catchy online that makes you right. click on it, like how to lose weight with just this one product. Right, right, You right. know, or yeah. the one vegetable that will help you lose weight. Right. So that's what that is. Brad Pitt said, what, Angelina Jolie? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Anything to pique your interest to uh-huh. click on it. And they're almost always disappointing people. Oh, of course. FYI. Or there's like eight pages and like, The one small piece of information is on the very last page. Yeah. Yeah. So there's eight episodes. Each episode follows one person. So the first episode is called The Sister. And the second one is The Detective and so on. I really like that a lot better than constantly time jumping. You know, I'm fine with the occasional flashback, but when it's the whole episode of going back and forth and two two years later and, you know, three months earlier, that just annoys me. You know what is always funny to me about episodes like that is how someone always has to have, like, an injury or something like that to differentiate mm-hmm. visually, you know, or, like, this really drastic haircut. Exactly. It's like, if you look at me from two years ago, I look pretty much the same. Yep, me too. You're not going to, you know, but in these cases, somebody always has, like, their arms in a cast. Or right. Or they have a black eye. Right, or their hair's much, much shorter. <laughs> Just so you can tell. That always makes me laugh. Exactly. The casting is absolutely great. It stars Zoe Kazan, Betty Gabriel, and Adrian Greiner. 
And he was the actor that played the actor in Entourage on HBO. Did you ever watch that? I never watched it. That was good. And one of the things I love about it, both of these shows, is it constantly keeps you guessing. I hate being able to figure it out. Okay. Through the whole thing. My boyfriend and I are like, okay, I think it's this person because of that. Okay. And we were always wrong. Oh, okay. So that was, that's a good thing to me. Did you finish the whole series? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I'll have to check it out. We'll watch a show and, like, watch one episode, and if it's really good, like, all right, just one more. Okay. And then we'll save it and switch to something else, you yeah. know, to drag it out and, you know, enjoy it. Yeah. And with this, we watched two episodes the first night, two mm-hmm. episodes the next night, and, like, the last four the next night. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, right. was, it was really Binge good. Binge-worthy then. Okay. Totally. And the other show was called Hit and Run. Have you heard of that one? No. Okay. So a man searches for the truth behind his wife's death. He ends up in the middle of a dangerous web of secrets and intrigue, stretching from New York to Tel Aviv. Mm. If you really just want to get lost in a show, I highly recommend both of these. You won't see the twist coming, and I don't know about you, but that's how I like my thrillers. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I want to keep guessing. Yeah, me too. It holds my attention more. Yeah. The more I can predict it, I'm going to pick up my phone, I'm going to scroll. Right. I'm not going to pay attention. Me too. All right, I'll check both of these out because I'm always looking for something good to keep me entertained. Cool. Yeah. I love TV. Yeah, me too. It's my favorite thing because I so rarely get to sit down and watch it, you know, because I like these kinds of things, stuff that's not really kid-friendly, so I can't have it in the background. That reminds me of something that I thought was funny with um, my four-year-old. I don't listen to crime podcasts with them around. I wait till nap time or bedtime or whatever. Of course. But I have, of course, listened to little snippets of, hey, doll, hey, doll. I'm, you know, and so anytime he hears it, he'll go, hey, doll, hey, doll, I'm your host, Paula. I'm your host, Cynthia, and we are Dolls and Doom. He'll say the whole thing. That's adorable. Well, the other day he was saying it just, you know, and then all of a sudden he goes, and today I'm going to tell you the story of a really bad man who does a really bad thing, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like... (laughs) I've never listened, let him listen that far in anything. So he's smart. He figured it out. He's sm- he realized. He's smart. Yeah. He knows what we're <laughs> we doing. We talk about bad people doing bad things. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> just because I, but I'm like, where did he ever hear this? Because <laughs> I don't play it. I maybe, I don't know. I got to be more careful. Yeah. He's at that age where he'll re- repeat everything. Oh, he yeah. Kids are sponges. Hears. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, guys, you may have noticed we didn't put out new content last week, and we really appreciate you uh, letting us have a week off. I just finished a house renovation, so we've had a lot going on, and I just needed the week to put everything back together, and it was the holiday week. We hope everyone had a good one, and we are so glad to be bringing you new content again. Back on track, so thanks for hanging in there. We appreciate it. Be sure to check out our website for pictures and links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. Follow us on social media, leave a comment, and stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. <laughs> All right, bye! bye.